What a beautiful day the Lord has given us to come and worship. Turn with me to John chapter 9, if you would. John 9. Starting, starting next week, when the, when the last song ends, like it did today, I want everybody to remain standing for the reading of the Word. We're going to start doing that. I think we'd owe, we owe our effort and our, our allegiance to the Scriptures, to read it standing as they did in times of old. So we'll start that next week. I won't make you stand this morning. John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the work, the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things... He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Our Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would empower us and it with your spirit, that we might glorify you in worship of the word. Your word is settled in heaven. It is eternal like you. And this morning we have the privilege and the, and the desire to hear it expounded. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us that as we have come for this very purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Jesus singled out this poor blind beggar just outside of the temple proper, his disciples, knowing that that the man had been born blind, asked the Lord a question concerning and creating a theological dilemma. Was the man born blind because of something he had done? Or was it something because of something his parents had done? Now they said this because some of the Greek Jews believed that, the, that a person could sin from the womb. There was also the Greek philosophy that believed in a soul's pre-existence. Sort of like a... 
Hindu reincarnation, if you will. And so that particular teaching taught that a person in a former life had done some misdeed and now their new existence, in, they're paying for those sins in their, in their new existence. Of course, the Bible knows nothing of such a teaching. One life to live, and that is all that there is on this earth. Now, if it was his parents that sinned, it seems that that wouldn't be be a fair thing to uh, see that this man was blighted with blindness because of some sin that his parents had done. What happened to this man was similar to what happened to Job. Job was an upright man, fearing God, but he was used by God as an instrument of faithfulness and of God's work in a a man's life. This is basically what we see here in this man. Job's life was full of pain and suffering and turned out to be a vehicle for the glory of God. And this is what Jesus says this man was there for. In fact, F.F. Bruce writes in his commentary on John, This does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be an aspersion on the character of God. It does not mean that God, it does mean, however, that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew into manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and others seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the world. God doesn't just create people so that he can, uh, so that he can be evil to them and mean to them, or work evil on them. Well, Jesus clears up the dilemma in verse 3 by stating that it was not the parents, nor was it the man himself who had done anything, but rather that the works of God might be displayed in him. With their backward look, Jesus substitutes a forward look. He looks ahead and sees the hand of God in this poor man's existence. Where the disciples are looking backward, trying to pick something out that would, that would say why he is in the condition that he's in. They ask, how did it come to be? Jesus answered, it happened with a definite purpose. He was born this way so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Far greater miracle to heal someone blind from birth than to heal someone that went blind after birth. It was as though Jesus heard the Father's voice whispering in his ear, Pay attention to this blind man. 
and work the works of God so that they might be displayed in his life. There's a great application for us. This is how all of life should be viewed. Should we not say, as Joseph did, when things come to pass in our lives, God meant it for good? They may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? Should we not believe that, as Romans 8.28 tells us, that all things work for good to those who love Him and are called to His purpose? All things... Even afflictions, calamities happen with their ultimate purpose directed to the glory of God. Can we see in our circumstances God's glory displayed? This is a very difficult thing to entertain. The reason it's difficult is because we want to be in control of our lives. We want to be the makers of our destiny. But beloved, we are not in control of our lives. In fact, we are very much out of control. Left to ourselves, we would be shipwrecked in a moment's time. Oh, we can make decisions about... I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to go here or there. We make those decisions, but it's the Lord that orders our steps. Isn't that, what, isn't that not what Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord orders his steps. Sometimes the decisions we make don't go the way that we think they ought to go, but the Lord orders our steps. To the disciples, this man presented a theological problem to solve. That's that's what they saw. But to Jesus, it was an opportunity to do the work of the Father. In other words, Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, stop worrying about the unsolvable things of this person's life and look to the work of God being done in his life. What can how can he be glorified? How can God be glorified in him? Now I want you to notice the emphatic word "we" in verse four. We must work the works of God. We. He's talking about himself and his disciples. We must work. Is the standard. Of the Christian church. Jesus himself gave that mandate. In Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you. Until the end of the age. Notice that Jesus commanded his disciples to work, but they were not to work alone. We don't do our work as believers alone. For the Lord 
is with us, and He promised to be with them until the end of the age. And that promise is a promise for us too. Now these works that Jesus is talking about here, the works of the Father, are not a multiplicity of individual deeds or works stacked up and piled up on one another. Rather, they are a singular work. It is one work that characterized that is characterized by the works of the Father. When you and I come across someone or someone crosses our path, we have three possible reactions or actions that can take place. The first one is that we can pick up rocks to bludgeon the, the person with. This is what the Jews did. When Jesus came across their path, they wanted to stone him. This was their reaction in 859. Sadly, this is many times the course of action that the modern church takes. And the people in those churches Someone comes across our path, they're different than we are. We try to figure out what's going on in their head or in their, in their mind. And first thing we want to do is say, you're not like us. We pick up stones to bludgeon them with. Metaphorical stones. You're not like us, so we will, in our jealousy, throw rocks at you. Or the second reaction is that if someone comes across our path and and they really pique our interest, we can gratify our desire for more information by asking questions so that we can solve the theological problems in their life. This is what modern psychology, Christian psychology, tends to do. They want to find out what's going on inside something that's happened Forty years ago, that's making you the way you are now. This is what the disciples were doing. Now, there's nothing wrong with curiosity, and there's nothing wrong with theology. But there's a place and a time for both. And this was not that time. third thing we can do is we can simply, and the thing we should do, is we can simply love people. People that come across our path, we can just simply love them. That needs to be, that must be, our attitude. Just love people. They don't have to love in return. They don't have to even be lovely themselves. But we have to love them. That's what we're commanded to do. That's what Jesus did. And that's the works. The word works implies duty. It is our Christian duty to work for our Lord in loving people. 
and do kingdom works in, our, in their behalf. Sometimes that might mean feeding someone. Sometimes that might mean uh, rescuing someone from something. There are, any, there are any number of ways. I get calls every week, sometimes once a day, of people calling, asking for help or handouts. And I'm very... I want to be very careful how we use the Lord's money in such a way. But the other week, this couple came walking in here. They had called me on the phone before, and they gave me their story and needed to be put up for a night. I said, I can't put you up. I said, but have you eaten today? They said, no. Now, I don't know whether they'd eaten or not. You know, you, when, you, when you're doing something in the name of Christ, you just, you do it, and you don't, you don't worry about what's in the past with them, or whether they're telling you a lie or not. So I said, hang on, and I, I got my hat, and I took them out to my truck, and I took them over to Coburn's, and I purchased a $25 gift card for Coburn's, and and. I said, do you know where the deli is? And they said, yes. And I said, well, you can use this in the deli. Get you something to eat. I handed it to the lady and I said, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what impact that will have, if any. But when, we, when, we, when people come across our path, it does no good to try to figure out their the dilemma of their life. They just need to be loved. We need to show care. Now you can't do that to everybody. But you can to those whom the Lord leads you to do. So how long do we have to do this kingdom work? Well Jesus gives the answer. He explains it in the very next Verse, phrase and verse, as to the extent of the work of the Father, it is essentially the rest of our lives. He says, and if you notice the words, while it is day, and the words, uh, in the words, as long as I am in the world, those two, those two phrases mean the same thing. It means as long as I live. Jesus is saying, as long as I live on this earth, I am the light of the world. What we do for the Father, we must do in the daytime, in our lives. Why? Because night is coming. When no one can work. What does he mean? There are people who work at night. But he's not talking about physical work. When Jesus hung on the cross and had paid for the sins of all those who would ever trust in him, he cried out, it is finished. And he breathed out his last breath and his work was done. Night had come. 
His day was done and he entered the dark of night and death when he would no longer work in person on this earth. He had been working up until then, but now it's all stopped. As far as he, as far as his physical life on earth is concerned. This simply tells us that while we have opportunity to do God's work, we should do it because night is coming when we die and our work will cease. This places a great sense of urgency on the mission that we've been given because night comes for everyone and their work ceases. Do you realize That as a child of God, who has the Spirit of God residing in you, that you are in partnership with the Heavenly Father in His work? You're in partnership with Him. Doing the deeds of the Father through the power of the Spirit... Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor, understood the urgency when he wrote, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. This may be my last sermon. Who knows? My night might come, and yours too. We only have a little time to do what God has put us here to do. And the disciples were able to do the kingdom work with Christ because they were there with Him. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. They were right there with Him. They saw the light. They they worked with Him. They were empowered by His life. But when the night came, they all scattered. When Jesus breathed His last, they were all gone. Hiding in the darkness. For fear that they themselves might be taken. Jesus had warned them of this. Over and over again. John seven thirty three. I will be with you a little longer. And where I'm going, I'm going, then I'm going to him who sent me. John 11. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Anyone, if anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because there's no light. John 12. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. Over and over again, he he told them, I'm just here for a little while. But as long as I'm here, I'm the light of the world. You can walk in my light. He empowered them. We find him giving authority to those disciples who had followed him and sent them out two by two to preach. But what happened when Jesus' day was over and night came? We find the disciples hiding out in Jerusalem behind locked doors, gripped with fear, like little children facing the darkness. Matthew 
26 verse 56 says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples left him and fled. John 20 verse 19, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came in and said, Peace be with you. And they were that way, by the way, even after they saw the Lord, after He had risen, even though they had seen the Lord several times, we still find them in the upper room waiting and still fearful. Until the Holy Spirit came and empowered them again like Jesus had done when He was with them. While Jesus was in the world, He was the light of the world. And He still is the light of the world today because He is the risen Savior living in the hearts of His people. His light now shines through those whom He has redeemed and through the gospel that they preach. Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. See, we're still doing the Father's works through the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't work in darkness. In fact, we see in the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, headed for Damascus to to imprison and to slay people of the way, that he was confronted by the Lord on that road. And it says, Jesus told him, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Are you a light for anybody? Does your light shine bright enough for people to see that Jesus is the treasure of your life? You see, people in darkness can't see unless there's some light. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of, of God the glory of Christ, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For it was God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And that light is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This man, who had never seen anything, was about to see everything. Now what Jesus did defies defies sound reasoning and normal approach to helping someone with an eye condition. He knelt down in front of the man and spit in the dust. Now I want you to think about the man. He's blind and so his other senses are really keen. He can hear things really well. He can feel things really well. But he can't see anything. So, 
he hears Jesus spit. Well, he was familiar with that sound. Because no doubt, people who passed him would have spit upon him many times. But the spit didn't fall upon him this time. It fell on the ground. He could hear this. He could hear as Jesus picked up the dust of the ground with the spit and made it into mud, clay. Jesus mixed the spit with the dirt into a paste. He smeared it on the man's eyes. That's what the word anoint means. It means he smeared it on his eyes. You ever had dust or sand to get in your eyes? It's a horrible feeling. I remember as a boy, I'd come running in something, some speck of something in my eye, and, and, and mom would take a little eye cup and she'd fill it with water and stick it over your eye and sh- make you shake your head. With your eye open, bat your eye, try to get that thing out. Because just one speck in your eye is torture. This man had it all over his eyes. Now, why did Jesus do it this way? That's a good question. Because he didn't do it this way for anybody else in Scripture. He healed many blind people. But none are said to have had mud mixed with spit put in their eyes. Well, there have been many ideas as to his method. I'll give you a few of them. Number one, it may be to impress upon the man the healing power that came from Jesus. But we find this man later on not knowing that it was Jesus who had done this to him. Second... To make use of the healing qualities of saliva. It was the rabbis taught that saliva of the firstborn of a father had healing properties. Not to mention the pagan cultures that believed that saliva held magical effects. Number three. Some say it was to make this blind man even more thoroughly blind so that he might appreciate the cure even more deeply. That sounds kind of far-fetched to me. I mean, blind is blind. More blind? Darkness is darkness. Fifth, to symbolize the fact that the man was made from the dust of the earth. Well, certainly we were made from the dust of the earth. I think more likely it was to induce the proper attitude of heart and mind in this man. To bring about perfect obedience. That type of submission which carries out a seemingly arbitrary commands. And it seems like God does this many times over. Arbitrary commands. Now, if that's the correct answer, then the mud placed on his eyes has nothing to do with the fact of his physical healing. 
but more to do with his obedience to an arbitrary command. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why Siloam? Why not the pool of Bethesda? Why not the Jordan River? Why not some cistern of a rich man that lived in the city? Go to the pool of Siloam. We'll talk about that here in a moment. It was the command of God the Son and the obedience of faith in His Word that brought about the cure for this man. Arbitrary commands test obedience. They are not something new. For example, when God had created the garden with all the trees and the, and the bushes and the, the vegetation in the garden, He said, you can, you can eat of anything here except this one tree. That sounds kind of arbitrary, doesn't it? One tree. Eat of anything else. Just this one. You don't touch. Or when Naaman came to Elijah, Elisha, and with leprosy all over his body, and Elisha said, Go and dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Why the Jordan? Even Naaman said, there, there are much clearer waters in the rivers where I live. No, go to the Jordan and dip yourself seven times, not six. Seven. So it is no real surprise that Jesus would tell this man to go, blind as he was, to the pool of Siloam and wash his eyes. The real message of this miracle is not about the physical healing of this blind man. It is about the one whom light, who was the light of the world, shedding light on those who live in darkness. That's the real point of this miracle. That Jesus opens blind eyes, spiritually. Remember, Jesus had just made the declaration in verse 5 that he was the light of the world. He had said this at the end of the, of the feast when he stood and said, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so now he illustrates this point, that point by giving this man sight, one who was born blind. The illustration is appropriate. For all men are born spiritually blind from birth. They don't see. They can't see. And they, like this blind man, go through life stumbling and falling over their sin, living like beggars with no one to care. No one to point them to the place of seeing. And notice in verse 7, there is a special interpretation given to the name of the pool of Siloam. 
He says, go wash in the name in the go wash in your eyes in the pool of Siloam, which being interpreted means sent. Sent. Siloam is a translation of the Hebrew word Shiloh, meaning to send. What reference does that have to this event at hand? Jesus is the one who was sent. He made this claim many times in his dealing with the Jews and with his disciples. Many times in John's Gospel, in Matthew, in Mark, and Luke. Later, Jesus would say to his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. I'm sending you. Now, the pool of Siloam was at the southernmost part of the city. It was fed by a spring called Gihon, north of the city of Jerusalem. And the water from the, from the spring of Gihon flowed through a tunnel that was, that was dug by King Hezekiah in case the Assyrians were to bring a siege upon the city, the city would have water. It flowed down to the pool of Siloam. Sadly, the Jewish ancestors during Hezekiah's day rejected the waters of the pool of Siloam just as the Jews rejected Jesus who was indeed the water of life. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. Turn with me, if you will. Isaiah 8, verses 6 and 7. In verse 5, Isaiah says, The Lord spoke to me again. And he said, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh. That's the waters that flowed to the pool of Siloam. Because they have refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoiced over Rezin, the son of Rehamalah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the kings of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its bank. Now that's metaphorical speaking to say that there was going to be an invasion by the Assyrians and they were going to literally flood Jerusalem. And the reason? Because they refused the waters of Shiloh. Just like the Jews refused the water of life. When he stood right in front of them. Remember it was from the pool of Siloam. That the water was drawn for the ceremony. Of water pouring. Of pouring at the feast of booths. It was here that Jesus declared himself. As the water of life. That was that, that was a symbol of God's blessing. On the nation of Israel. The water from the, from the pool of Siloam. Was a symbol. Of God's blessing on Israel. But here, 
Here it is a symbol of God's blessing on all the nations of the world. Jesus is the water that quenches the soul's thirst and he is the light that leads people home who have no sight through his salvation. He leads them home through salvation. So as instructed, the man makes his way to the pool of Siloam, obediently washes his eyes and immediately light shone. Think back to the moment or the time when you realized that you were a child of God and the amount of light that you saw. Well, I remember it clearly. It was almost as though, with me, it was almost as though the lights just came on and I could see. I could see myself. I could see I could see Jesus for who he was. I could see my sin. I could see salvation. I could see it all. Now, for some people, it doesn't happen like that. For some, it's a, a, gradual, a gradual turning on of the light, turning it up as though it's on a rheostat, just, just gradually turning it up until it's bright, and then they see. Everybody's different. You can't look at one another. You can't look at another person and, and say, well, they, they should have had my experience. No, it's their experience. And they're all different. The circumstances are all different. So he washed his eyes and immediately he saw he was no longer in darkness, but now he could see clearly. And make his, made his way home. When it says he came back, he went home. We know he did. Because later on we'll see his parents. Before the Jews as well. His obedience to the Lord's command is a symbol of the marks of genuine saving faith. Romans 1.5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Where there is no obedience, there is no faith. Christians want to, to obey God and they want to live for Christ. Romans 15 verse 8. What Christ has accomplished through me, Paul says, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by both word and deed. Romans 16, 26, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Hebrews 5, 9 says, he was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. You see, true faith and obedience go together. You can't separate them. This man would prove in just a short time that he not only could see physically, but that he could see spiritually 
in chapter in verse 35, which verse 35 to 38, which I will not expound now. I'll just give you the uh, what happened there. It says Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, now Jesus went to find him, and having found him, says, "Do you believe in the Son of Man?" He answered, now, "Who is he that I might believe?" Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. In other words, I am, he said. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Four things found there. Here they are. Four characteristics of spiritual sight that everyone displays who comes to true faith in the Lord Jesus. First, there. It requires divine initiative. Nobody comes to God that God does not initially draw to himself. Number two, it responds in faith. It responds in belief. Number three, it recognizes Christ as the source of salvation. And number four, it results in worship. That's what we're here for. That's why we exist. So that we might, having seen Christ in the salvation that He has given to us, worship Him in all of life. This is just a... When we come here and we worship, this is just a a launching pad for the rest of our week in worship to Him. We should worship Him in everything we do. And say, and one day He will return. He will take us to Himself. We will be like Him. And we will behold Him face to face. And the works of the Father in our lives will be over. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come together this morning and worship you in teaching and song and with the Lord's in the Lord's Supper and and in prayer and in the preaching of your word. And we pray that you would be glorified, that you would be honored through it all. We praise you for Jesus, who is the light of the world. He's our light. He's given us blind people sight to see. And we love you for it. We praise you for it. And we are ever humbled because we know that we were not worthy to receive it. And yet, we have it. This we ask and praise you in in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.